Well, welcome to Finding Your Motivation with yours truly, Steve Stazak. And um, I didn't change my background here, but I am a motivational trainer. Pretty much do public speaking training and sales training. I help people not only get over their fear of public speaking, but I help them become more effective speakers, which is a feat in itself. That is my business. Today, uh, you know, each week I have a guest. Today we have a, I have a guest. His name is Daryl Stickle. He's one of the most. He's one of the world's um, leading tr experts on trust. I almost transposed those words around there. I haven't used that word in a while. In any case, Daryl's one of the world's leading experts on trust. He's got a PhD from Duke. Can't get much better than that. And um, he has worked with senior executives from a broad range of industries from all over the world. Served on a faculty of the Luxembourg School of Business and the Center of Effective Organizations at the Southern California. So he has a lot of credentials here. I'm going to let him expand on that a little bit. Thanks so much for having me, Steve. Uh, and welcome. I, I appreciated earlier in our conversation, you actually being willing to admit that you'd known some people from Duke. Um, <laughs> Duke doesn't have the best reputation inside North Carolina sometimes with locals, so... Um, yeah, so I, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology, a master's degree in public administration. Um, I was, I was headed towards becoming a clinical psychologist and then just realized that a lot of the people I was working with were struggling. They were doing the best they could. And, um, and that, that I would go insane if I just spent my whole life trying to help people who couldn't move. And so when I was in public admin, I was working in native land claims and they would ask me these sort of deep philosophical questions like what is self-government or what will BC look like 50 years after claims are settled? The last question they asked me was how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for 100 years they should trust us? And I thought, oh, that's a pretty good question. And so I went to Duke and wrote my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. So expand on that a little bit. Well, I wanted to understand why sometimes disputes lasted so long, you know, why they seemed so resilient, even when it wasn't benefiting anyone anymore. Um, and I came to understand, you know, when I was studying trust and looking at all the existing work, I realized that there were a bunch of holes. Um, that, but, but the primary one when it came to dealing with conflict and, and long-term disputes was was really around emotions. So 99% of the trust research treats people like they're rational actors. And I don't, I don't know if you've ever met people before, Steve, but we're not always rational, you know, <laughs> and the more emotional we become, the less rational we are. Right. And so, you know, I like to say that both love and hate are blind. Um, and so those are, we're trying to deal with emotional issues with cognitive rational responses. You know, you look at the the divide in the U.S. right now between Democrats and Republicans. Interesting well, subject. Yeah. They, they each try to bring facts and rational arguments to bear, but it's a very emotional topic at this point. It and, yeah. and they tend to ignore each other. You know, we make all these points and everyone just says, well, you're lying. 
I don't, That's I right. don't believe you. So um, understanding those disputes has let me go into some difficult environments and try to reset those emotional states first and then and then work to bring people together so that they can actually work together and collaborate on things. So then let me just ask you, right, let me interject there. So yeah. are you a consultant to in those situations to companies and governments? And yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. Tell me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so I've done work like that. Um, I have sort of a blend of approaches. Really, my aspiration is to teach people how to get better at getting along and how to build stronger relationships. And so there are times when I get brought into difficult spots and try to help resolve situations. But I also do training where I skill build with people because building trust is a skill. We're all able to do it. Some are just better than others. And so- Could you cite try some, to... an example of what you first said, um, who, you, who you worked with? Sure. So I was asked, I was working with a company. Uh, I was training some of their senior leaders and they asked me to meet with their executive board and spend a day with them. And I, I agreed. And then the day before that happened, they said, Oh, by the way, the unions are going to be there too. Uh -huh. And I said, well, that'll be different. And they said, yeah, we've been in court with each other for the last five years and everybody hates everybody. And so I got pulled into that environment. Um, and I spent the day with, with all three groups because there were two unions and the executive board. And at the end, they all stood up, shook hands with each other, shook hands with me. And they said, it's the first time we've had hope in five years. Um, I've done some work with parents who were estranged from their kids and managed to turn that around. I, you know, I went to work uh, at a cement plant while I was working for McKinsey and company and they had had a strike and shots had been fired during the strike uh -huh. and everyone had been fired. And then they all got hired back because it was in the middle of nowhere. And I got sent in to try to resolve things and and cut costs. Um, after six weeks, the head of the new union stood up and said, you know, at a at a meeting with uh, senior leadership, said, "We understand the costs are a problem. Labor's part of that. We're committed to doing whatever we have to do to make this work." And the VP for the company and and the senior partner for McKinsey both looked at me and said, "What did you do?" And I said, "I just had a conversation with them. I just." talk to them. And so I've been in settings like that where tensions are running high and people are upset. Um, you know, conflict between a couple of different senior leaders on a board, those kinds of environments I've gone into and had positive results. What's your secret sauce? So a big part of it is helping people have empathy for one another. Um, so we interpret the world through stories and partly I go in you know, if I was to sit in a room with Republicans and Democrats, I would first say to them, I'm neither of those things. Right. But I do have an understanding for both and empathy for both. And then I would ask one group, what's your story? Independently, just by ourselves. And then I'd ask the other group, what's your story of what's going on and what's happened? And then I'd bring them together and say, group A, you tell me group B's story in front of group B, which provokes a bit of empathy and has them try and understand. And it gives the chance for the, for the two parties to correct misperceptions 
come to a shared understanding. And it tends to leach out some of the anger and, and hostility. Um, so a big part of that is is really trying to provoke empathy. So if, nobody, oh, go ahead. Well, nobody wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm an evil jerk, Steve. They we all have a reason for why we do what we do, right? Well, of course. What about the uh <clears throat> you had some uh did you have an experience with climate changes? I I have not worked in that area, but I have written about it. Okay. Um so I just recently wrote a book. Uh, called Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World, where I talk about the fact that uh, there are, we interpret the world through stories. It's one of the big, hairy problems that we're facing. Um, you know, I think there are several of these big, hairy problems that we've created, and collective collaborative action is the only way to actually resolve them, but trust levels are the lowest we've ever seen. And so when we start talking about climate change, you know, there's resistance from some spheres because of economic impacts. There's a real felt vulnerability by some because they're actually experiencing the impacts of climate change. Um, and so there's there's a place there where we need to find common ground. Right. That's a thing. Yeah, yeah the common ground is all like, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. So I used to do some leadership training and some of the exercises were, you know, that's, that's a popular thing to find the common ground. Yeah. Yeah. If we can find shared, a shared understanding and the approach I take is really, it tends to be really practical and applied. So, you know, I've developed a model for me, trust is a combination of uncertainty and vulnerability. And so when we're deciding to trust someone, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. The, the first question is, how likely am I to be harmed, which is perceived uncertainty? And the second question is, if I'm harmed, how bad is that going to hurt, which is perceived vulnerability? And those multiply together to give us a level of perceived risk. And we each have a threshold that we're comfortable with. Some people are more trusting than others. But if our perception of the risk goes beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if it's beneath it, then we do. And so actually building trust becomes fairly simple. It's where's uncertainty coming from? How do I take steps to reduce it? How are people vulnerable? How do we help them manage that so that we get below that threshold? So what, what drew you into this field? Why are you so passionate about this topic? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I huh. so I was born and raised in a small town in Northern British Columbia, Northern Canada, and it was relatively isolated. Um, my father was a welder with a grade eight education. My mother was a waitress. Um, and I ended up, uh, I played hockey because that's what everybody did. Um, and I was a decent hockey player. And I uh, was playing in Fort Nelson, so north of even where I grew up. And I got attacked by a fan of the club. Um, beat me almost to death. Shattered really? my helmet. Yeah. You must have been a high um, scorer then. I was the team captain. Yeah. Yeah. So I got jumped. Um, and I, so I'm visually impaired. I, I, over my life, I've become legally blind. Um, From that, at that accident? Time, no, it was a hereditary retinal disorder, but it's, oh. it's gotten just progressively worse. So 
you know, when I played, I was playing junior hockey, which is fairly high level. Um, but I, I could see people, not the puck. And so I saw the, the motions and the pattern of play rather than just being focused on the puck, um, which made me different. Because, you know, one of my coaches when I was playing college said to me, how does a guy, you know, I'm 6'3", I'm 200 pounds at the time. He goes, you're 6'3", 200 pounds, and you, you're wide open in front of the net all the time. How does that happen? I said, I just go to open ice. Like, there's just, there's holes there. So part of what pushed me towards studying trust was that I had developed a really strong sense of empathy. I had struggled. I had suffered. You know, I I had been put at risk. I had been made more vulnerable than I was comfortable with. And for some reason, people just would open up to me, Steve. They, you know, I'd be sitting on the bus and somebody would sit next to me and go, I'm just really having a hard time. And so I thought, you know, if this is going to keep happening, maybe I should get paid for this. <laughs> um, so, I, so I started down a path towards clinical psychology. Uh, and I worked with troubled teens and street kids and families in crisis and worked on crisis lines and all those kinds of things to hone those skills. But then when I... When I came to understand the, the way that I built trust with people, I wanted to have a deeper level of understanding of that. And that's partly what I went to do my PhD for. And, and I wanted to be able to not only replicate it, but share it. And, you know, the, the impact that I've had where I've, where I've been able to sit with a father who feels estranged from his sons and have him three months later, tell me it's completely turned around. My kids throw themselves on me. They tell me they love me. You know, they fight to sit next to me. Um, that is powerful and impactful. And I, I feel like I'm dropping grains of sand in the ocean. That's part of the reason I wrote the book is so that people could understand those skills and, and start adopting them and, and pick them up and, and do them themselves. We, the world could be a better place. Yeah. Um, we all have the ability to build trust. It's a skill that each and every one of us should be able to focus on improving. So let me ask you this. I'm in the motivational business. Right. And the, one of the big things is to trust yourself. Right. So let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, sometimes well, I have issues with that. Right. And, and partly that's, you know, I'm, we we interpret the world through stories and it's which story do i tell because i have the choice each day to tell a positive story about myself or a negative story and you know i i can tell a, a profoundly negative story about myself you know a blind guy who's losing his hair and you know could stand to lose a few pounds and blah 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 right um or I could tell an incredibly positive story about myself, right? I'm a guy who grew up in a remote community in Northern Canada, ended up speaking at Harvard. Uh, they said I was brilliant. You know, I went to work for McKinsey and Company. Um, I talked to senior executives yeah, on a McKinsey regular basis. McKinsey and Company does what? They're consultants for what? They do management consulting. They're one of the world's leading management consultants. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard of them. Yeah, so they, they hire the top 1% from Harvard and other places. And uh, when I was there, people would say to me, how does a guy from Fort St. John end up here? And how does anybody end up where they do? 
Well, exactly, right? You kind of put one foot in front of the other. And, you know, I I remember going to an event after I'd been offered the job and I was just debating whether I was going to take it or not. And all these people are getting up and, and telling stories about their backgrounds and their and their lives. And it starts to become apparent that these people didn't just go to the same universities. They went to the same high schools. And so there's this sort of feeder program that I had never been part of that got people to this place. Um, how it works, yeah. It seems to be, right? And so I was this outlier. and But they, they, you know, they so accepted I, you, didn't they? They did. Actually, they quite liked me. I had, you know, some of the best client hands they'd ever seen. So I was good with people. Um, and I, I came to realize that that was a skill that I could teach others, right? That, that I could teach others how to be better with people, how to have better conversations. Trust is a social lubricant. And so if I can teach people how to, you know, and if we want to talk about leadership or sales or, you know, those are all trust decisions. You know, the more, the more senior we become, the less direct control we have over outcomes, the more we need other people to reach our goals and objectives. You know, sales is a trust decision. Um, getting hired or promoted, those are trust decisions. And so, you know, it it's this sort of foundational piece that has an impact on our lives all over the place. And it's something that we can take control of. Do you, uh, you speak, have you done any, um, your people ask you to do keynotes? Done a couple, not as many as I would like, but I, I've done a few of them. I would think you'd be doing a bunch. Um, what is the greatest impact you've had? Uh, so I worked for a mutual fund company, My probably my first client. They hired me to help them. So first they asked me to give a, a speech, a keynote speech. Asked me about sustainable competitive advantage. And I said, well you're a mutual fund company. You don't do anything I can't copy. And to have sustainable competitive advantage, you have to do something better than somebody else and, and they can't copy it. So I could buy one share of every fund you have. And now I know how they're all built. And I could sell what you sell at a discount because I don't have to pay the fund advisors. I said, the only thing you can do is build deep long-term relationships with your customers. And they said, that's it. That's our strategy. <laughs> um, and so they asked me to come in and train them. And, and so I, I built a workshop, trained everyone, did problem solving, coaching, consulting, all that kind of stuff for about 18 months. They hired a professional survey firm, found out that trust was the primary driver of the sales decision, that they were dramatically more trusted than any of their competitors. And they generated 75 cents out of every new dollar for the next two years Jesus, within Canada. And they were part of a global financial services firm. And that firm started sending teams from all over the world to figure out what these guys were doing because they were dominating everybody. And so that was, that was pretty significant. Um, I helped the Canadian military try to figure out how to build trust with the locals in Afghanistan. Uh, that well, was pretty intense. That was intense. But I think the, for me, the most meaningful one was one of my clients, uh, told me that he was estranged from his son and his son was engaged in some behavior he didn't like. His son was 15 at the time. And we did, uh, I, I deliver uh, eight-week programs 
And at this point, it's two eight-week programs. It used to be a 12-week program. So I did this 12-week program with him and the, and the other senior executives from his team. And I get people to choose a trust buddy. So they pick someone outside of the course to practice the skills on every week. And he chose his son. And after 12 weeks, I said, how are people doing? How have things gone? Let's let's recap and see where everyone's at. <clears throat> and everyone else went around and said, you know, people have noticed the behavior change, my spouse, my colleagues, life's better, it's easier. We get to him and he said, I didn't tell you guys this, but my wife had filed for divorce. <laughs> he said, here we are 12 weeks later, we're actually closer than we've ever been. My 15-year-old son just threw his arms around me, gave me the biggest hug I've ever had, said, I need you in my life, Dad. He said, that's how things are going. Wow. That's probably the biggest impact I've ever had. That's pretty big. I, yeah. So he mended his, him and his son became, um, well, they mended their whatever. Their the fractured relationship. Yeah. The rela yeah. The, the relationship and the wife. What was the issue there? You know, he never got into it, but he was practicing these skills of, you know, trying to show. So there's, there's 10 different levers that I talk about mm -hmm. and we had walked them through, you know, it, so three of them are really popular and you'll see them in a lot of the different books on trust. It's benevolence, integrity, and ability. And so benevolence mm -hmm. is, do you have my best interest at heart? And are you going to act in my best interest, even if it's not in your own short-term best interest? Integrity is, do I follow through on my promises and do my actions line up with the values that I express? And ability is, do I actually have the confidence to do what I say I'm going to do? What does excellence look like? And so a lot of times we can be aware of those levers, but we don't know how to pull them, right? So one of the exercises I'll get people to do is I'll, I'll say, you're going to go talk to your trust buddy and you're going to talk about benevolence. And here's the conversation you're going to have. You're going to say, so Daryl was talking about benevolence and he said, that it, it means having someone else's best interest at heart. And I think I do that, but it doesn't always land. Have you ever experienced that where you're trying to do something that was good for someone and they didn't react that way? Oh my God, yes. Right? And, and so now you're having a conversation about benevolence. And you start broad and then you start to narrow and you say, have you ever had someone really act in your best interest? Like you really felt they had your back. Yeah, yeah, I have. Well, who was it? What did that look like? What did they do? How did it feel? And so now you're starting to narrow and you're starting to get some hints about what benevolence would look like for them. And then you narrow it further and you go, what would it look like if I was benevolent to you? What could I do to help you be successful? What matters most to you and how do I help you promote that? And now you're transparent. And now if I try to act benevolently towards you, I can refer back to our previous conversation and say, you remember when you told me this really mattered to you? This is me trying to help you with that. Right. And so now we've become more intentional, right? Mm -hmm. And so I do that for all 10 levers. And he was practicing those skills with his wife as well as his son. And it works. Well, it's because, don't you, I mean, I know you know, but I think what I'm thinking about here is, People repress certain things or push them to the side or don't practice them or what have you. And what you're doing is you're bringing them out so then they're more natural selves, right? 
That's a big part of it. It's about clarity of, of communication. It's about being intentional. There's a certain element of vulnerability to me telling you, I want to act in your best interest. Because what if I screw that up? Or what if you say, I don't care about you that much? Um, yeah. Vulnerability is, is not easy for a lot of people. It isn't. And and part of how we build trust with each other, Steve, is, is I make myself a bit vulnerable to you. And you see that and you you feel an urge to reciprocate. Yes. Right? And you, you go, okay, so Daryl told me about getting attacked by a fan with a club. He told me about some of the darkest times of his life. He, he's told me that he's legally blind. So he's he's laying out these things and, and making himself open and vulnerable to me. And I, I get the feeling like I could do the same. Right. And he's sharing things, you know, so I've made myself a bit vulnerable and then I've tried to be benevolent. So I'm trying to share things with your audience and with you that people can go away and try without paying me a dime. Right. So that's mm -hmm. benevolence. And in fact, you know, if people wanted to look up some stuff, I've got a bunch of stuff that's for free on my blog site on at Trust Unlimited. So if they could go to the Trust Unlimited website, look in the blog section, there's articles there, there's podcasts there. There's all kinds of things that they could look at. That's and read. good to know. Yeah. Because I'm sure a lot of people out there, you can use this in relationships, you know, male-female relationships. Yeah. Um business situations i mean we already talked about that we really didn't talk about the hit on the relationships but <clears throat> a lot of people are interested in that these days because i don't know there's a lot of distractions for people yeah that's why there's probably more single people out there right you know what they're doing now these millennials instead of instead of having kids they have dogs right 90 percent of them 80 percent of them have dogs Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we start thinking about this. People ask me, why, why are trust levels so low right now? Well, our vulnerability certainly hasn't changed, but the uncertainty has gone all over the place. Right? right. Things are changing so fast. And the values and norms are changing. It makes people uncomfortable. What's, what's okay is no longer clear. You know, people are opting out of the dating scene because they they don't know what the rules are anymore. <laughs> so, you know, we see massive spikes in uncertainty with no regression in vulnerability. It makes people really uncomfortable. Well, good then. What do you think about now? Here's a perfect example of that. Is this China thing that just came up between the government and the the people? Right. What's your right. What's, what's your spin on that one? Well, so why don't you go over there and resolve that? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I don't think it's a good time for Canadians to be in China, given that they falsely imprisoned a couple of them. Um, and I was asked, you know, when I when I was teaching at Luxembourg School of Business, they said, "Hey, we're thinking about opening a campus in China. Would you go?" And I said, "No, fuck, I I would not go there because I don't trust the regime." Um, a man you know, that talk, a man that heals trust doesn't trust. Well, I'm kidding. I, I, no, no. And you know what? It's a fair point because what I try to teach people is how to close the gap between how much you should be trusted <clears throat> and how much you are. Um, I think China's an exception, though. <laughs> yeah. And so people have been repressed long enough that they figured, you know what? I'm willing to take the punishment. 
you know, we, we have to get some, there has to be change. And we've seen this in other places. We see it in Iran right now uh, with the protests, you know, repressive regimes are struggling. And, the, you know, there's an, an analogy here for parenting. You know, I wrote an article that's on my blog about trust and parenting. The command and control style works well until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, it really doesn't. And so at some point, we need to transition into a more relational approach with our kids. Well, this is the same problem these governments are having. You know, the you crack down and then you crack down harder. At some point, it stops working. Right. And so I'm actually trying to really sort of figure out what's going on with this China thing. They're trying to create zero... COVID spreading? So, yeah, yeah, which is apparently very hard. Well, so um, what are they doing? Are they, are they have curfews and... What, is curfews that, is that it? and, and even constant testing. Uh, so everyone gets tested all the time, and if you if you have COVID, you get isolated. Uh, um, people aren't allowed to go out. Uh, you know, so there's... Um, and the thing is, is that no government has had the perfect answer for this. You know, it's a pandemic. It it kind of does what it wants. And we saw the U.S., you know, different states had dramatically different approaches to how they handled it. And some work better than others uh, short term and some work better than others longer term. And the rules keep changing because the, the virus keeps changing. Mm-hmm. Well, I pretty I thought this stuff was pretty much arrested, but apparently it's not. <clears throat> I guess no, it seems to be making a comeback, particularly in China. Their their rec, their levels are are remarkably high right now, from what I've heard. Well, they need to they then we need to uh, put on some strict. Um, what do you call it? Guidelines. As far as people coming over here, we're going to get it again. Yeah, exactly. And so it, it's it's proven itself to be extremely difficult to contain. Cool. Yeah, I went to and, a uh, yeah. conference out in La- L- um, Cal in Anaheim last week. This past weekend, not this past weekend, the weekend before. And uh, since there were a few couple movie stars there and some billionaires and things. Some high-level people. They wanted us to. Uh, we had to not only prove that we had, were vaccinated, right? But each morning, we had to show them a COVID test. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so the rules are different, right? So yeah. So now I have, like, I don't know, about six or seven COVID tests at home because <laughs> I, I got a whole bunch of them. And uh, anyway, right. So, I'm, I'm, I can and, test. <laughs> and now we see, you know, trust levels have declined in uh, the Center for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. And it's because at times they had different recommendations and the recommendations seemed to change over time. And sometimes they contradicted themselves. And in part, they were really focused on the virus rather than the human cost. Um. And, you know, there are places where we should trust them. 
and places where they need to learn and grow and develop as well, right? So, hmm. yeah. Hmm. Well, anyway. Yeah. Well, we are about out of time here on the show, unless you want to add something else. It's been really enjoyable having you on the show, I got to tell you. I've really enjoyed this as well, Steve. It's been really a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, same uh, here. If folks want to reach out, they can. Uh, uh, Daryl at TrustUnlimited.com. And uh hope folks pick up a copy of the book, read it, and apply it. Um, what is the cop? What is the book? It's Building Trust, Exceptional Leadership in an Uncertain World. You can get it on Amazon or Audible or uh, as an ebook. Anywhere you buy books online, you can order a copy. Okay, great. Yeah, I was just uh um came across Audible today for another for a business purpose. But Audible's right. huge. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic, especially it's for huge. a guy who's visually impaired. Yeah. So some of the people, somebody now, now they're creating a uh, instead of selling, people are selling audio books on Amazon now as a business. Yeah. Like lay people, it's a okay. big thing now. It's not FBO anymore selling products. These people are selling audio books, and they're right. making them too. This yeah. lady, this lady gets up on one of the. YouTube commercials, you know, those things that pop up before the video starts. She says she, she's she's um she looks like she's lat Latino. And she said, I don't even speak Spanish. And I and I wrote a book on how kids can learn to speak Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> and she's getting paid for it. Nice. Amazing. <clears throat> anyway, We're it was great to world. have you. Maybe we can have you on the show again. Anytime. Yeah, I'll you know I keep in touch with your connection there, and uh, once again it was great to have you. Um, once again, his name is the, my guest name tonight was Daryl Stickle, and he's one of the world's leading experts on trust. And when I saw that, I was like, "What leading experts on trust?" Right. But he is, and he's he's got some. Now, who do you, who do you work for now? So I've got my own little company, Trust Unlimited, uh, and I I do a bit of teaching, but uh, mostly I'm independent. Okay. And yeah. people find you. They do. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure they do. Cause this is, this is a very niche business, niche business. Yeah. And like yeah. I said, there's lots of people talking about, Hey, it's really important, but not a lot of people talking about here's how we fix it. And that's <laughs> what I do. Gotcha. And you don't, you probably don't have many competitors out there. Not really. No. That's nice. Okay, so once again, Daryl Stickle, one of the world's leading experts on trust. We thank you for being here, or I thank you for being here. And uh, once again, show is brought to you by uh, Finding Your Motivation is brought to you by Leader Speakers. Um, the uh, I was going to say the world's leading public speaking presentation skills company. No, we're not quite that big, but we are good. We do help people get over their fear of public speaking and become more effective speakers. So with that, um, thanks for listening to the show this evening, and uh, we will see you next week.